Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture this morning comes from Acts 13, verses 16 through 23. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, all. You've uh, you got to do the work of like 200 people, so good morning. All right, good to see you all, and for those of you joining us live stream, uh, great to have you here as well this morning, and um, I was reflecting on this first Sunday, and you know, we've been doing a lot of logistical work to kind of get ready, and Manfred in particular has done a great deal of that, so make sure you, you thank him. Give him a big hug and a kiss uh, on the way out. I know he'll like that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but, uh, but I was thinking preaching is, you know, it was so different to go preaching from a room full of people to then just preaching to a camera. And then I kind of got adjusted to that because I just kind of like blocked out the emptiness in my mind and then pictured all of you in the camera. But now it's like you're here and you're in the camera and I'm a little, I feel a little confused as to like who I'm preaching to here. So I'm going to kind of, you know, try to preach to all of you, right? And so we've got, we've got our crowd here this morning. We've got a bunch of you, the majority of you, of course, uh, joining us live stream. But it is good uh, to be together, however we are together, worshiping the Lord. And uh, we're going to keep trusting the Lord to keep guiding us and leading us. And um, just thinking, like, how are you all doing with this uh, season? It's, it's a tricky season, right? And there are just so many different opinions about uh, kind of what should be the priorities kind of out in the culture, about what should be the priorities of the church, and how we should all be uh, navigating this, and uh, it's hard to figure out where we should be going and how we should be navigating it all. And it's hard, I think, for many of us to maintain our spiritual health and our vitality in the midst of this season. So I've got a sermon kind of brewing in my mind uh, probably in the next couple weeks or so that I'm going to preach. It's going to be titled something like, How to Survive a Global Pandemic or something like that, Spiritually. And uh, I don't have it worked out yet, but we'll get to that. But this morning is not that sermon. This morning we continue on in our sermon series, All Things New, Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. Last week we finished up the period of the judges, and this morning we start the period of the kings. 
And the age of the kings, like the judges, spans about 400 years of the Bible's history. And going somewhere around the close of the 6th century B.C., uh, for about 400 years. So it covers a lot of historical grounds. If you're interested in reading about this era in the Bible, it's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. So kind of three uh, sections or, or six books altogether of the Bible dedicated to this. Samuel, who we were introduced to last week, uh, was the last of the Jewish judges. So he kind of closes out the period of the Jewish judges, but Samuel also really kind of starts the age of the kings because he is appointed by God to bring about, to, to, or, to um, anoint the first king of Israel. So we're going to look at Samuel's ministry as it kind of draws to a close and also how he anoints and appoints uh, Saul as the first king. But then Saul's dynasty is rather short-lived. We can't even really call it a dynasty. And then Samuel has to appoint a second king, David. And David's kingship grew into a dynasty that endures uh, even to this day. So this morning, we're going to look at these two kings to see what we can learn about why one king lost his throne and the other king gained a perpetual dynasty. And as we're going to see in the lives of of these two men, they're both confronted with a choice to follow after their own hearts or to follow after God's heart. And the choices that they make not only determine the course of their lives, but and here's the thing I'm going to draw, want to draw our attention to this morning, not only determine the choice of their lives, but whether or not they achieve their heart's desire. So the question that I want us to kind of be percolating in our minds a little bit is this question. How do I achieve my heart's desire? How do I gain my heart's desire? How do I get what my heart desires? It's a timeless question. It has as much relevance for David and for Saul as it does for us, because who amongst us is not interested in gaining our heart's desire? We all want our heart's desire. Our culture has its own ways of trying to achieve one's heart desire. So it could be any, anything uh, from good, honest, hard work to being a mob boss, right? I mean, we got a whole span of ways that we can get after our heart's desire according to kind of the ways of the world. But the Bible has ideas, too, about how to get our heart's desire. The Bible has a, a different way God has a different way of us gaining our heart's desire than the world. God isn't against us getting our heart's desire. He's actually all for us getting our heart's desire. But His way is different than the way of the world. So what we're going to see this morning in the lives of Saul and David is the counterintuitive logic of the Christian faith, which is this, that we don't get our heart's desire by chasing after our heart's desire. We get our heart's desire by chasing after God's desire. So we're going to try to unpack this in the lives of these men. Our scripture reading today was taken from Acts 13, 16 through 23, which is the Apostle Paul's executive summary of the lives of, Di of Saul and David. And I'm going to take us back into 1 Samuel where we see it more detailed. Uh, we're going to get, uh, where, it's where Paul actually gets his information. And we're going to look from 1 Samuel, we're going to look at three and historical vignettes of the lives of Saul and David. 
Two from the life of Saul, a third from the life of David. In the first vignette, Saul loses his dynasty, his chance at a dynasty. In the second vignette, he loses his kingship. And in the third vignette, David gains the crown. So we're going to look at all three of these vignettes. So if you have your Bible, get that out. Make your way to uh, 1 Samuel 13. We're not going to read all of it because it would take too long. But I'm going to draw some, uh, some verses out of these different vignettes. So if you're following at home, get your Bible out on your phone or there in your lap. Make your way to 1 Samuel 13. And we're going to look at these three vignettes, and I'm going to draw out uh, some points of application then and apply uh, the truth that we find in these vignettes to the question of our heart's desire. All right? So our first vignette comes from 1 Samuel 13. And uh, in this passage, if we were to take time to read it, uh, 13, 1 through 15 is kind of our vignette. Uh, in this passage, Saul has just been appointed king. He's been anointed king by Samuel. And right out of the gates, he finds himself at war with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, if you know much about the biblical history, the Philistines were the perennial on-again, off-again foes of the Israelites, more on-again than off-again. Israel was constantly at war with the Israelites. And the Philistines were more established, they were more militarily advanced, and so very often throughout the biblical account of the kings, the Israelites are coming out on the losing end of the stick with the Philistines. Goliath, if you've heard of Goliath, he comes uh, from the Philistines. So in 1 Samuel 13, 3 through 5, Saul's son Jonathan attacks and destroys a Philistine outpost. So the Israelites start this conflict. And the Philistines retaliate in force. And you can see it in verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Numbers are very tricky in the textual transmission. And so some, I read a bunch of commentaries and, and a lot the commentaries are all like, we're not quite sure what these numbers mean, but we do know that numerous as the sands of the seashore is a lot. So whatever the exact numbers are, there's a lot uh, of the Philistines that have come out to confront the Israelites. So Saul finds himself in a difficult situation. Through Jonathan's attack, they have bitten off more than they probably can chew. He's outnumbered and overmatched by the Philistines on a good day, and then this isn't a good day. So Saul doesn't have a large professional standing army. His army is mostly made up of citizen soldiers. So when Israel needed to go to war, the trumpet, as it were, would be blown across the land and the able-bodied men would come out and they would join, they would muster together to fight with Saul against the enemy. But, you know, these are farmers and these are ranchers and these are shepherds. These are not professional soldiers. So Saul blows the trumpet and he gathers together his men, but these men that are coming are still outnumbered by the Philistines, and it's also to be noted, this will become important in the second vignette in particular, that they're not being paid. So like Saul doesn't have like a treasury that he just like doles out money to, right? So they're coming out of their desire to maintain the uh, freedom of the Israelites, and they're also, though, they're, if they're going to get paid, they're going to get paid by winning their battle. So the spoils of war is how you get paid, right? You, you keep what you have uh, won in battle. But 
You can't spend the spoils of victory if you don't win the battle, and you can't spend the spoils of victory if you're dead, and it's looking like both of those realities are going to come true for the Israelites. So many of Saul's troops, when they see the size of the Philistine force, they go into hiding, they are deserting, some of them are even fleeing, taking their family, and they're going across the Jordan River uh, to get away from the Philistines. So this is not an easy situation for Saul's you know, first, first go at kingship. The one hope of the Israelites, the one hope of Saul, is that God is on their side. That's really the decisive thing here in this battle. Saul is hoping that God will give them victory miraculously like He did through the judges of old, because God has miraculously delivered from foes in the past, like He did through Joshua and Gideon and Deborah and Samson, and most recently, like He has done through Samuel. So in 1 Samuel 7, just a few chapters earlier, at that time, Samuel had rallied the Israelites called upon the Lord, and had brought about a great military victory against the Philistines. So Samuel is still around. He's appointed Saul to be the king, and Saul is hoping that Samuel is going to show up, and he's going to invoke the blessing in favor of God, and together they are going to be able to overcome the Philistines. So Saul is waiting with his army, waiting for Samuel to show up, to offer the sacrifices that are commanded by the Lord that will invoke God's favor and blessing. And that was Samuel's job as the prophet of the people, and uh, so Saul is waiting for him to do this. But so far, Samuel has not shown up. He's supposed to come within seven days. It's getting to the end of the seventh day, and there is no Samuel, and Saul sees his army leaving him, uh, trickling away as they wait, and he, he panics. He feels like we can't wait any longer. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He goes and gets the sacrifices, and he offers the sacrifices himself to invoke God's favor. So, ironically, he does an act of disobedience to invoke God's blessing in this battle. Well, as soon as he is done offering the sacrifices, who shows up? Samuel shows up right? And so Samuel shows up, and Saul, you know, comes out, and he's like, oh, you know, greetings, and, and uh, he, he, uh, he greets Samuel, but let's read this text. So I'm going to read here 13, 11 through 14, just so this is kind of the key point in this passage. So follow along here, 11 uh, through 14 of 1 Samuel 13. Uh, so Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have, have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I, I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So if you know your way around the Old Testament story, you know that David, we're going to see this next week in particular, David gets the dynasty. David is the one who gets the kingship that endures forever. It could have been Saul's. 
could have been Saul's, but he threw it away here in this moment. Samuel tells Saul, because of his disobedience, he has lost the opportunity for a dynasty. God's going to raise up another king. This king will be a man after God's own heart. Let me just pause here a second to clarify this expression, after one's own heart. In our contemporary English, the way that we use this term a lot, it primarily means something like, we like what another person likes. So if I say, oh, I really love chocolate, and you would say, oh, you're a man after my own heart. Right? So like our, our affections are kind of aligned with each other. And there's, that is somewhat how this expression works in Hebrew, but the, the Hebrew concept of heart is bigger than just feelings and affections. It includes not just emotions, but one's purposes, counsel, and will. So it's not just what you feel, but what you do. So to be a man after God's own heart isn't that you just feel the things that God feels, that you kind of cry about what God cries about and you celebrate what God celebrates. It's not just your affections, it's that too, but it's also one's will. Saul wasn't rebuked because his feelings were wrong or for being afraid. He was rebuked because his actions were wrong. That's what it meant when he wasn't a man after God's own heart. He had not kept the command of the Lord. He had tried to secure the desire of his heart. What did he want more than anything at that moment? He wanted to preserve his kingship. That's what he wanted. He tried to secure the desire of his heart in his own way, and he lost it. So as the story continues, Saul's story, he goes on to wage a successful battle against the Philistines. Samuel has come. He has brought the favor of the Lord, and they are victorious. But Saul's disobedience to God's law has cost him the very thing that he was trying to preserve by his disobedience. All right, second vignette goes to chapter 15, 1 through 31. Saul is still king, and he is appointed by God to a special task. He is to wage war against the Amalekites, which are old enemies of Israel. And he is to wage war and bring about divine vengeance upon the Amalekites. And unlike in previous battles, he is, Saul is to devote all the spoils of war to destruction. He's not to take any of the spoils for himself. He is to destroy everything of the Amalekites. Now, this is tricky, not just because it's tricky to wage a war and to win a war. That's tricky in enough in itself. But it's tricky to destroy all the spoils because that's how you pay your troops. So Saul has to recruit an army, tell them to win a victory, and then to burn all of their pay. That's essentially what he has to do here in this situation. He's basically asking his troops, he's mustering an army and asking them to risk life and limb out of the goodness of their hearts. Saul defeats the Amalekites, but it becomes clear that he has never told them about the fact that they aren't getting paid. Like he left that part out when he mustered the army. He's let his soldiers keep the best of the cattle and livestock and all that was good, the text tell us, tells us, as a form of compensation for their efforts. And again, Samuel shows up. 
And Saul tries to put a good face on it. And he says, oh, blessings upon you, Samuel. So good to see you. I, I could just see him. You know, he's trying to like bluff his way through this. I've done everything the Lord commanded me. Aren't you so proud of me, Samuel? This is kind of Saul's response, except, of course, he hasn't. And so Samuel's like, well, then what's the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen that I hear in my ears if you've really done everything you were supposed to? And Saul tries to pass off his disobedience to the Lord's command as an act of worship, as an act of piety. I did everything you asked, and the people have taken the livestock to, to offer sacrifices to God. Isn't that great? Like, God has given us this blessing, and we're just giving it back to God. And, and Samuel says, stop, you haven't obeyed. Again, you have not done what God asked you to do. The Lord didn't want sacrifices. He wanted obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to God is worth more to him than the fat of rams. Samuel tells Saul that because he has rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected him from being king. So we can read here in 15, 24 through 26. This is Samuel's, no, no, listen, this is Saul's response to Samuel. Listen to what Saul says. Now the truth comes out. I have sinned, Saul says. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And now we find out really why this happened. It wasn't an act of piety that he did not follow the Lord. He says, I have sinned because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Saul feared he would lose his kingship if he told his army, you're not getting paid. And he was afraid of his own people if he denied them the spoils of war. And so he turned his fearfulness into an act of piety and said, well, we'll just offer some of this as sacrifices. But it wasn't obedience, it was fear. Saul was afraid to kill the livestock because he was afraid of his soldiers. And Samuel turns to leave, and Saul, in desperation, grabs on to Samuel's robe, tearing it. And Samuel says to Saul, in the same way the Lord will tear the kingship from you, and give it to another. So in the first vignette, Saul forfeits his opportunity for a dynasty because of his disobedience, because he pursued his heart's desire his own way. And in the second vignette, he forfeits the very throne itself because he pursues his own desire, his heart's desire, his own way. Which leads us to our third vignette, which we find in 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16, the Saul disqualified, God sends Samuel to appoint a new king. So Samuel is sent to Bethlehem. He's supposed to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king. Jesse is a shepherd down in Bethlehem. And David, the youngest son of Jesse, is chosen as the next king. So here we can read this in 16, 6, 1, or 6, 16, 6 through 13. When the sons of Jesse came, he looked, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue, stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but looks on the outward appearance. Oh, I'm sorry. For the, 
For the Lord, that's not the right way to read that scripture. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abimadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? I was told to appoint a son Jesse, and these are your sons. And he said, there remains yet a youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he went and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose and went to Ramah. So Samuel was sent to Bethlehem to anoint one of the seven sons, or one of the eight sons of Jesse. And the most unlikely of the sons gets chosen. The youngest son, who Jesse was so sure was not the one to be chosen, that David had to be back and stay with the shepherds, with the sheep. But this is the one that was chosen, and God says, I have chosen him because I haven't looked at the outward appearance, but I've looked at the heart. I've looked at the inner man. God saw in David a man who would do his will, the very thing that Saul had neglected. God had told Saul through Samuel, I'm going to pick another person beside you. I'm going to pick one who will do what I've commanded. God saw in David a man who would not follow after his own heart, but would follow after God's heart. David was the kind of man who was willing to submit his plans, his purposes, his desires to God's plans, God's purposes, and God's desires. David lived out the New Testament command that Jesus has given us to seek out God's kingdom first, above his own kingdom. David surrendered his desires to God's desires, and then God gave him his desires. So here we encounter this deep irony that marks the lives of Saul and David. Saul, more than anything, sought to preserve for himself the kingship, and in so doing, he lost it. David, more than anything else, sought to preserve for himself God's will, and in doing so, he gained the throne. And there is a rich biblical lesson here that I want us to see in these two men's. Saul followed his heart's desire and in the end lost the very thing he sought. The very actions he took to preserve his throne were the actions that caused it to slip from his grasp. In his singular pursuit of his heart's desire, he lost the very thing he was pursuing. But David did not prioritize his own heart's desire. He prioritized God's desire. And in prioritizing God's heart and in pursuing God's heart as the highest above all else, he gained the throne. When David was called to be king, he was not in the field seeking glory. He was in the field seeking God. And God he found, and God raised him up. David's life was living proof of what he wrote in Psalm 37, that if you delight yourself in the Lord, then God will give you the desires of your heart. All right, so now let's try to apply this into our lives here today.
the key, and here's the principle, the key to gaining our heart's desire is not, as the world would tell us, to pursue our heart's desire. There's a certain irony there. The key to gaining our heart's desire is not to pursue our heart's desire. The key to gaining our heart's desire is to pursue God's desire above all else. In other words, you don't get what you're aiming at by aiming at it. You get what you're aiming at by aiming at God. So in geographical navigation, that's, of course, not how it works, right? So if I wanted to go to L.A., I would point myself towards L.A., and I would head west, right? You get to L.A. by trying to get to L.A. You don't get to L.A., if you're in Chicago, by heading east, right? But what works in geography is not what works in our relationship with real life and God. You want happiness and joy and life and peace. You don't get happiness and joy and life and peace by pursuing them. You get those things by pursuing God. And very often it will seem that your pursuit of God is taking you in the opposite direction of your heart's desire. You're like, I thought we were going to L.A., but we're going east. And God is like, trust me. Surrender yourself to my guidance, follow my commands, and I will lead you to what you are looking for. Chasing after your heart's desire will not lead you to the thing that you seek. We do not gain our dreams by making our dreams the center of all that we do. We gain our dreams by making God and His will the center of all that we do. Our own best efforts, our own deepest resources, our most adept gifts cannot preserve our lives. We must abandon ourselves and all that we hold dear to God. And if you read the life of David, this is what marks his life different than Saul. David abandons himself in obedience to God's ways above all else. We must, like Abraham, lay Isaac on the altar. We must, like Rahab, hide the spies. We must, like Hannah, dedicate our miracle-born son, all in faith that God will not abandon us when we abandon ourselves to Him. And then we must follow Christ down into the shadowed valley of the cross and kneel with Him in the darkness of the garden and pray, not my will, but your will be done. What is your heart's desire this morning? What do you want above all else? When you sit and think, this is the thing that I want, what have you set your sights towards in this life? What do you dream about obtaining? Or perhaps what do you fear losing? What are you clinging to or pursuing like Saul clung to his kingdom? What are you pursuing with the belief that possessing it will bring you joy and peace and wholeness? If I just had this thing, financial security, a career, maybe some ministry vision you have set your sights to, perhaps a desire to be well-liked 
at school or in your social circles. Maybe you're pursuing a spouse, friends. It's your heart's desire. It's what you think will bring you joy and peace and happiness and wholeness. What would it look like to let go of pursuing those things as your highest priorities and instead making the pursuit of God your highest priority? What would it look like to trust that following God above all else will bestow more blessing upon you and all that you hold dear than you could ever dream? To obey God, to follow Him above all else, to fix our hearts on Him with the singular purpose of making His purposes our own. That is the path to life and to blessing and to exaltation. It is the path to the throne. So be comforted this morning. God loves us. Just such good news, right? He loves us. He has pledged Himself to us through His Son, who more than anyone else shows us that God honors those who seek Him above all else. In our call to worship, we read from Philippians chapter 2 that we should have in our minds the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Jesus who followed God, His Father, above all else. He is the one to whom David's life pointed. Right? He is the great Jewish king, Jesus. And he followed God's will above all else, and God gave him the throne of the universe. Surrender your heart's desire to him, to God, and then follow him in faith above all else. He will lead us in his time and in his way to all that our hearts desire. Amen? Father, thank you that you have given us a path to obtain our heart's desire. You're not asking us to just follow you in some path to the cross that ends in a cross and a crucifixion and the denial of all of our desires, but you, you want to give us every good thing. You want to give us all that our hearts long for. Help us to not pursue those things in our own ways, in our own wisdom, Help us to be like David. Help us to be like Jesus. And we would say, not my will, but your will be done. That we lay aside those things to pursue you above all else. That we would be a men and women who follow after your own heart. That we make your priorities our priorities. That we set the agenda of our life to match your agenda and to trust that you in your own way, in your own time, with your loving Father's heart will bring us to a place of blessing and peace in only the way that you can. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.